Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and things we bought anyway. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, pretty good. I thought we would go ahead and record this one. <laughs> we, uh, we almost didn't do that today. That was fun. It, it seems to be one of those um, obligatory parts in a long running podcast is that you have to have the episode that starts out talking about the problems recording your episode mm -hmm. yeah. yeah it's nearly every episode of reconcilable differences <laughs> i still love the um what leo laporte ended up doing to be able to record some of his podcasts they built the skyposaurus which was like multiple independent machines that all fed their audio to a single machine so that they could have people like each, each of those individual machines could then establish its own Skype connection to an individual guest. So they could live mix, but also if somebody dropped out, they could have somebody in the control room reconnect them without pausing the entire thing. Yeah. There's gotta be a better option. Skype is the best of bad options. Yeah. And at this point, it seems like the only the only way it's ever going to change is if we just all die. <laughs> like, that's going to be when we finally get to stop using Skype for podcasting. It's when we're dead. If we all die and the new generation takes over, it's all going to be recorded in something like TikTok, which isn't going to be any better. Yeah, podcasts will be like 15 seconds. <laughs> So what have you been working on? Uh, keyboard navigation. Yeah? Emphasis on navigation. Um, we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. And the keyboard part of this was trivial. Just listening for keystrokes and key combinations and stuff like that. In JavaScript, it's pretty basic, relatively easy. And... Uh, Doing anything with those was the hard part of this. <laughs> so I had figured out the the most basic of this, of like moving up and down in a list. And then thought, okay, I'll just implement this in these other places. And the core of the feature, moving up and down a list, moving from list to list, side to side, that part took maybe an hour. Solving all of the edge cases around the system took two weeks. <laughs> this feature is 100% edge cases. <laughs> Most of it comes down to, like, we're using stuff that's built into HTML. The tab order attribute and uh, just navigating through elements in the DOM. But because we're using Vue... Our DOM is kind of unnecessarily complex. Well, unnecessarily complex in HTML terms. Like if I was just building this as PHP and HTML, we'd have like half as many elements in the DOM tree as we do because of the way that we're doing it in Vue. And Vue needs certain divs just to exist to have things like uh, Vue binding stuff working. Particularly when iterating over a collection, you actually have to give something a binding to a key so that it knows how to tell 
one uh, element from another. So we end up with these kind of weird situations where we're in a list of things, but we can't just go from the current selected item to the next item. We actually have to go up to its parent and then across, up or down um, in that list to the next or previous item. So it's kind of complex that way. It was kind of a mess. Um, <laughs> the Our category sidebar has headers so sections that break categories into kind of you know super categories, mm -hmm. and we just skip over those. So I had to make something that could tell when we're on one of those rows and just go to the next one based on the up or down arrow that we're we're clicking. And then the item list was relatively simple. The organization lists were probably the most complex because there's a number of different row types, including those invisible rows that only show up as a solid purple line in the spot where they were removed from on the, right. the corresponding sides. So I'm not describing that very well, but yeah. So moving up and down the list was a pain, um, but the real pain was moving side to side from say the sidebar, category sidebar into the item list, into the detail view and back and uh, getting that working consistently, and then all the edge cases around that. So what if the sidebar is hidden? Um, I spent a whole bunch of time accounting for that, and apparently it didn't work because the last version I tested, that stopped working. So I need to fix that as well. But <laughs> like I would, the category sidebar would be hidden. I have a keystroke to show the category dropdown, and I should be able to immediately start using the arrow keys in that with that region in focus. But for some reason, the focus is remaining on the item list view behind it. And it's kind of a pain. Um, also things like we've got a couple of areas where we, like the I guess the most special case is that layout objects view. So we go from category to item. So we pick the layouts category, then we pick a specific layout, our detail view loads, we move down that until we find the button to load the layout objects view, and that does a navigation to an entirely different layout. And then in that case, we've got a left side organization view, a right side organization view, and a detail card that is responsible for both of the two sections. And navigating those, basically like the detail card can't just tell, always say, go back to the item list. It has to know, go back to the, organization view in some instances, go back to the item list in some instances, um, things like that. So none of this is actually built into the components. Most of it's happening at the app level. And I did, basically I gave each region a name and whenever you focus on an element in that region, it just sets a flag in the store and says, this is the current region we're in. And then there's some conditionals in the keyboard navigation it says, if we're in this region, then do this action. If we're in another region, then try this. And each of them have multiple things that they're trying. So yeah, it's it's a lot. It's the it's one of those features that I can tell as I'm doing it that I'm going to look back in a year or so and know that there's a better way to do this. But I don't know what that <laughs> way is right now. Yeah, it really seems like it should be really simple and straightforward and then it is really simple and straightforward 
until it's completely not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everything falls apart. Yeah. And part of this is, is the design of the app, the three column or three, yeah, three column interface that we have. All of the stuff that's built into the DOM assumes you're basically working on a single tree and you're moving up and down in that or in a similar level. But mm-hmm. we have essentially three DOMs, even though it's technically one DOM. Yeah. But we've got those three totally independent things that control one another, but don't directly interact with one another. So yeah, it's a lot, there's a lot going on there. You know, if we're going to build some more apps in this model, maybe it makes sense to like mm, libraryize or componentize this thing so you can just drop it in next time, but it's not going to work then either, is it? No, there's nothing abstractable about what I did. This is <laughs> this is hard-coded to our specific design because like the sidebar is built in this specific way. Here is the output like I, I, just, I built this entire feature with the web inspector open, writing JavaScript into the console and selecting divs, making sure I'm getting the right ones. And then I would write the JavaScript function for that. So this entire thing was written mostly in the web inspector and then porting it back into the code. Lovely. Um, because what I'm dealing with in the view side isn't necessarily what view is outputting when we build the app. So yeah, it's interesting i mean this is probably one of those good compelling cases against frameworks like view because you end up i mean it seems to tilt the scales in the favor of like this is why you don't use things like this because they add so much additional complexity but if you look at what we built the app most of it would be still possible without view but we would have spent so much longer on it yeah so it's it's we're we're kind of paying some penalties for all of this you know the leverage that we got from using view in other areas well and as i'm thinking about it not using view would that have made this part easier or just more consistent with the rest of the code like this still would have sucked yeah it still would have sucked but our dom hierarchy would be easy easier to navigate because Mm. we wouldn't have all of the extra stuff that view is injecting to do it to view viewificated stuff. Got it. So yeah. And a lot of this just comes down to like, there are certain things in view that you can't do with a template. So a lot of what we're doing, you know, we're doing like a V if in a template, but when we're doing a for loop, you can't do that on a template. If you need to use that key for something or the index for something, you actually have to do that on a div. So then that div gets injected in as well. And when you look at it in the DOM, it's not doing anything. It's just a div, but it has to be there for <laughs> the view process. Uh, I don't know if there's some third-party library to go through and like just clean up all of these extras, but ddiv. Yeah, yeah. It's a it, it was a bunch, but uh, yeah, I got most of it done. Um, it's done enough that I want you to go ahead and merge it in with the main branch, and then next time you do an update. Like send it out to beta users and start getting some feedback. It's not going to be perfect. We're going to get bug reports about this. Um, but it does, I'm at the point now where we need to start getting those to move forward. Yeah. Well, I've already done that merge. Okay. And I played with it a fair amount and it works really well. Okay. Um, I'm sure we will get bug reports, but 
it works exceptionally well. Like the the thing for me on keyboard navigation is does it work the way I expect it to? Mm-hmm. And the answer is almost always yes. And so far in the cases where it didn't work the way I expected it to, I went, oh, I see why it doesn't work that way. Like uh, at one point in layout objects, there's the two organization views and then the detail card. And Mm -hmm. I selected something on one of the organization views and wanted to jump directly to the detail card. Like I selected something on the left organization view and wanted Mm -hmm. to kind of skip over. And when I hit the right arrow, it went to the other organization view. I went, that wasn't where I wanted to go, but I totally see why it's going there. No problem. Yeah. So it's pretty dumb. It's just saying I'm in the left column. I'm going to, you pushed right. So I'm going to go right one column. It's not saying it doesn't have a specific destination in mind. Mm -hmm. No, it, it makes, like I said, it makes perfect sense why it worked that way. It was, you know, you try and build an app that is going to be kind of obvious in its functionality Mm-hmm. and makes sense to users but there's always a little bit of figuring out how the app works mm-hmm. and as a des- developer and designer you try and minimize that but there's no way to make it completely go away particularly with something as complex as fm comparison yeah so i'm ecstatically happy with what we've produced nice and we'll we'll see if everybody else is too Cool. So speaking of layout objects, <laughs> what have you been working on? So layout objects suck. Yeah. Let me preface this with the fact that I did all of the work to get the layout object stuff, the view loading. And then I'm, you know, there was like 15 items in my little checklist. And then I made a one box, one checkbox item for Dave, like go ahead and fill in that data yeah. and just dismissed it. I'm like, that'll be easy. And apparently, I was like sentencing Dave to death. <laughs> um, yeah, so a number of weeks ago, probably a couple of months at this point, um, I spent some time talking about how they had kind of reorganized the way that script steps are defined and how they built them into kind of these very consistent uh parameters and so instead of having to to code for 200 different kinds of script steps i had to code for 100 different kinds of parameters and some of those inside themselves sucked really badly but there was at least more consistency um layout objects did some of that there's there's a little bit here and there um one of the things that they've done really consistently is layout objects that contain other layout objects mm-hmm. contain a XML node called object list. An object list contains all the kind of top level child objects. And by top level child objects, I'm saying some of those could also contain other objects. And so those would be inside those things. It all gets very crazily hierarchical. It turns out that this is basically the only place in the new XML that is multi-level hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Everything else was flattened out. Um, 
script steps aren't actually inside scripts they're elsewhere uh scripts aren't inside script folders they're all stored in one flat list and that has its own pain in the butt but here it just kind of you get this infinite level of hierarchy as things get deeper and deeper and deeper and that's all fine like i'm used to working with that there's one layout object that doesn't do this and the very singularity of the discrepancy is obnoxious you remember and i'm pretty sure this was in an offline discussion but we were talking about how previously in the xml a popover button used to contain a popover panel Mm -hmm. which actually stored all the items. So you'd have the popover button and inside the popover button was the popover panel and inside the popover panel was all the items that actually appeared when you clicked the popover. Yeah, it turns out it's actually there. I was never finding it because it's not in an object list tag. Why? Hmm. Because it doesn't need an object list. There's only one object there. Uh. And so the person who designed this feature in the new XML decided to not put that inside an object list that only contains one thing. So the parser wasn't finding it. Hmm. I mean, it could see the panel, but it didn't. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. Hmm. Um, now actually what was happening was it would jump directly from the popover button to the objects inside the panel and not find the panel itself. The problem, the panel is the thing that has the outer bounds for the region that pops up, that has the background color for that thing and any styling that's been applied to the panel. So, <clears throat> yeah, I gotta dig in there and pull that thing out and treat it like all the other layout objects, which is all going to make for a load of fun like this is this is a whole level of fun that's going to make the process of trying to generate patches and updates and things like that at some vague potential point in the future just more complicated mm -hmm. all because they left out a single tag <laughs> one tag object list and a member count member count equals one that's, that's all I need. <laughs> and so taking it apart sucks and putting it back together sucks. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And then there's the options. Options. Options are nice. Everybody likes options, right? Sure. Options are wonderful. Um, this is a property on many objects, in some cases in multiple places, that in the old XML, the old DDR XML, was very often called a key. But it'll just say options and then have a little number. You know, 157,482. Mm. Thanks. That, that's the options. And if you adjust the options on that layout object using the FileMaker inspector and then export the XML again, you just get a different number. And in almost every other place in the new XML, FileMaker is no longer exporting these options. 
Um, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about um, a difficulty with script steps and uh, breakpoints. Mm-hmm. The breakpoints were encoded in an options value. So between one script step and another copy of the exact same script step, the options value was changing and it took me forever to figure out why. And it was because one of them was set as a breakpoint and the other one wasn't. And it was just this number went from 4 to uh, 1,028. What? <laughs> why did they go from 4 to 1,028? Well, because 1,024 is 2 to the whatever, and that's what is the, the binary bit that stores this setting. So, so they're bit packing basically a list of options. I think uh-huh. the way you explained to me that say you've got 10 different options. They're bit packing them by assigning a one or a zero to each of those, lining them up and then converting that into an integer. Yes. So if you're storing that, if you think of all of those values as a kind of a true false, true is one false is zero. All those little check boxes and radio buttons in the inspector not all of them, but quite a few of them can just be jammed together. So is this text bold? Is this text italic? Some of that's in the CSS. Some of that's going to be in the options. Mm-hmm. Um, so the good news is that there is some documentation. Yay. The bad news is the documentation is not entirely correct. Oh, <laughs> and uh, I've got kind of updated stuff sitting in the FM perception code that I can dig into and kind of pull this out, but it's not structured in a really easy way to just simply reuse. Um, so I can't just grab the code from FM Perception and go, ta-da! No, it's not going to work that way. So those are a pain. Um, Yeah. So right this second, they're mostly going in as an options value. Just one little, here you go, here's the number. The number changed. And I'm going to have to break all of those down. Um, not fun. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And then I bumped into this crazy window resizing problem in Windows. Hmm. Um, where the window didn't resize. You can maximize. But you couldn't drag the window to resize it. Did you ever see that? No. Did you try that? Yeah. In Windows? Yeah. Since it's gotten the purple bar? No. Okay. Because <laughs> that's where the problem is. Hmm. You can only have really big purple bars. The, the issue is a conflict between how... So I'm using the library called Ma Apps. M-A-H. Ma Apps. And they have their own metro window for making kind of a metro UI thing. And that is somehow conflicting with having a full window 
chromium view. Hmm. Where I think chromium is eating the mouse click. So basically because that is the same, the, the size of the full window, there's no place for a, a drag handle at the corner hmm. or even in the sides. The one at the top works, but the other ones don't. <laughs> so you can only resize the window from the top. Right. And only by dragging it straight up or down, not out to the side. Yeah. Um. I could fix this by kind of insetting the browser window, yeah. but that did all sorts of terrible things, particularly with like dark mode hmm. um, and, and making the menus look funny because in windows, the menus are inside the browser window. So by making a little inset, it was, it was insetting the menus. <laughs> Yay. Um, so, I ended up finding that if I told Ma apps to explicitly give it a drag handle, like a visual on-screen little dotted triangle in the lower right-hand corner, <laughs> it would allow it to resize. But Chromium still covers basically the entire drag handle. So what that means is there's literally a single pixel in the lower right-hand corner that can be dragged from. It's one pixel. If you're one pixel off, you can't resize that window. Fun. It's not a great answer. Um, the only thing that that kind of gives me a little bit of reassurance is literally nobody reported this bug. I'm, I'm not convinced that people drag resize windows in windows. I don't very often, not manually. I, I mostly use all the window snapping stuff. Yeah, so window snapping or just kind of the full screen mode. Blow the thing out and done. Um, so temporarily I'm going to leave that there and see if anybody complains. Now that I've publicly told people that it exists, I'm sure somebody's going to complain. But... <laughs> Maybe we could draw drag handles in the browser that can pass the action down to the, web, <laughs> to the app. Yeah, maybe maybe that. Um, maybe it's going to be a spot where I need to make a really simple sample project and file it as a bug on my apps. Mm -hmm. um, in theory, that drag target stuff should still exist. I'm not explicitly suppressing it i'm not telling it to make the window unresizable but if you inset that chromium view by a couple of pixels all the resizing works but if it's the full width it doesn't even work at a single pixel along the edges I, and there's no way to tell chromium to ignore any kind of pointer events from a specific region oh maybe like if you just draw a little square in the corner, like you can't click here in the browser. Clicks from here pass into the background. Never even occurred to me. Great. Because it's a really goofy idea. <laughs> well, we've had a couple of those in the last couple of weeks. You um, can also do the indenting only from the bottom. Maybe. 
instead of indenting the browser window all around, maybe only do it from the bottom and the right. It might look a little wonky, but you, you, you could inset it a pixel or two. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. As a matter of fact, hang on a second. I need to make some notes. Now that's an edge case. <laughs> oh, 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 Joe. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Oh, oh. <laughs> that one. That weirdly almost worked. I was actually <laughs> laughing at the initial kind of joke and and the reference to everything else we've been talking about. And then the pun. Oh, God, I wasn't ready for it. I'm oh. not going to apologize for that. Did you have to go to confession over that one? That was a mortal <laughs> sin, a venal sin. Oh, okay. Sorry. You know, layout objects are a pun. The resizing windows is a pain in the butt. I would do all of that all day, every day, rather than deal with what I've kind of come to think of as the the end of project motivation loss. Mm. It's this weird thing that happens at the tail end of projects for me. Um, yeah. Last couple of weeks, I'm I'm sure you've seen it watched mm -hmm. me do it i just start having real difficulty focusing on getting the thing done it's like i can see the end and i go never mind <laughs> yeah i'm the exact opposite i think we've talked about this before but i it takes me everything to start a project and the early stages of the project, I have to like drag myself into it. But when, mm. once I see that I'm like within a couple of weeks of being done, I'm super motivated. You want to work on some layout objects? Probably not. <laughs> um, it always ends, mm -hmm. but it always sucks. Like I can see it. It's right there. There's the yeah. end. It's like it's like being in the last hundred yards of a freaking marathon. And I'm just like, man, I'm tired. Yeah, and as soon as you get the app into maintenance mode, you're fine. It's yeah. the actually like buttoning it up, taking it out of beta and shipping it part that you have trouble with. Yeah. I I I'm trying to figure it out. Like I like to operate under this illusion that if I understand my own reactions, I can counteract them, which mm -hmm. isn't always true, but I won't know until I actually understand it. I'm wondering if it may have something to do with kind of order of operations. Like I, I always save something nasty for last mm -hmm. so that I, I get to the end, but in that last hundred yards, it's three feet of mud. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a difference in our project preferences. I tend to do the most difficult stuff first. Mm -hmm. Or at least the most annoying parts of the project first. So that the entire time I'm accumulating a list of small tasks that 
could derail me from what I'm working on, but I save up a whole bunch of them and then can, the last couple of weeks is just breezing through a whole bunch of easy, small issues. Yeah. But could we have done layout objects first? No, not really. Or, I mean, or maybe preferences. Data, but yeah. Um, I mean, if we'd, if we'd, really broken this down at a component level like in view components and built test interfaces so that we could pull up a huge list of objects just generic doesn't matter what they are Mm -hmm. and could click on them and see the detail view and just kind of tested and built the detail view component as one project element Mm -hmm. and then pushed through that for all the different kinds of objects maybe that would have worked i i don't know if we could have pulled it off that way yeah like there was a lot of there was a lot of r&d involved in building this things we didn't know how to do or couldn't figure out at the moment it became apparent that we were going to need one. Mm-hmm. And it kind of had to develop over time. I don't know. Yeah, like um, there's no way I, with the keyboard shortcut stuff I did, the keyboard navigation stuff, we could have done that along the way while I was building the rest of the UI, but it would have been even worse because there are so many edge cases and things to keep in mind while coding that me trying to constantly load that back into my head while working on other stuff would have been impossible. Oh, absolutely. And this is one of those weird like viewpoint ones, the viewpoint issues mm-hmm. where like, I like you, Joe, and I like working with you, but you don't have this problem. Yeah. And it's, it's, tough to get into somebody else's head and go i see exactly where your problem is yeah you can guess we can come up with supposition but i don't know maybe by the time we do three or four of these (laughs) you'll go i know exactly what you're doing dave it's this Mm -hmm. fix that so you know in another couple of years we'll know the answer Something like that. But I really hate it. Like you just sit there hating the fact that you just can't do it right this second. Hmm. So yeah. As a matter of fact, I think it's popped up at least once as a conversation topic in one of our previous podcasts. Yeah. But yeah. So I'm displeased about this. The only thing I can I can say is it always ends. Mm-hmm. I am good at completing projects. Projects get done. They just don't necessarily get done when I want them to get done. Or because you want them to get done. Yeah, because I want them to get done. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so I'm currently stuck on the other end of that, <laughs> or my version of that, with the WebXR stuff. Wow. I have learned... Enough to be super interested in this and have tons and tons of options and things I want to build and I can't figure out what to do next. 
And every time I have a little bit of time to spend on it, which hasn't been very often, but say I'm going to take a three hour chunk of time on a Sunday morning. So, okay, I'm going to work on it this today. And I spend the entire, I waste the entire time just with indecision, just not knowing what to work on or, okay, I'm going to try this thing. And that thing ends up being something that there's no way I can accomplish that today or within the next three months. Like, yeah, I'm kind of in this weird phase where a lot of the stuff I want to do is front end type development in terms of the WebXR stuff. I mm-hmm. want to build really in, really awesome interfaces to data, but all of that requires getting the data into the app. And there are so many ways to do that. I got just the most bare bones basic version of loading a JSON REST API into Nuxt from the server-side rendering. So I got that working this morning. And then I went to like, okay, I want to see if I can connect this to maybe my FileMaker database or the SharePoint site or somewhere where I can arbitrarily create schema and then query it and get data back. Mm -hmm. And all of those just like, there's just so many things to deal with before I can just get data into the app. And I'm like, just... I get exhausted and frustrated and give up. What is the name of Louie's project? Uh, it's like FMJS. I went through, there's a community page with a bunch of links to the different data API resources. And I went okay. through all of the JavaScript ones. Two of them are basically just tech demos for loading stuff from the admin console API. Right. Um, but really, I mean, they all come with a big library or an entire node project you want to build. Like, I just, it, I just want the syntax for how to make an <laughs> API request in JavaScript. I guess that's really all I want. And then I want to set that up and get it working and leave it alone. But yeah, I don't. Yeah. What I need is for you to have an interesting idea that you want to build and you build the back end of something far enough along that you can then teach me how it works and then I can start building those. But I don't know if you have any ideas for stuff like that. Hmm. I mean, potentially at some point, uh, part of the difficulty is that the the APIs are good for data, but they don't have the kind of metadata that I'm usually interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things, for example, now that we've got uh, a script step that generates the new XML and other file manipulation script steps, you could make a script that you could call from the API that would return that kind of XML. Mm-hmm. But if I was doing that, like I've I've done API calls predominantly around registration and things like that. I have to talk to a, a, a JavaScript API to find out if somebody's FM perception or FM comparison is registered against the server. Mm-hmm. And that's obnoxious. And it's quite possibly one of the simplest APIs you could interact with. Yeah. And the FileMaker API is dramatically more complicated with 
tokens and the tokens expire and you have to keep them up to date, I personally would never, ever write that code. Ever. Yeah. I My first stop would be Louis' project. He kind of figured all of that out, wrapped it all up in a library, and went here. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it just you, depends. Like, I don't know. I'll just have to look at that. Everything that I was seeing was basically for making client side requests. I don't want to make client side requests. This has to be on the server. The whole point of it is doing it on the server because I'm not going to just paste in my username and password for the database into some JavaScript that's going to show up when you mm-hmm. right click and say inspect element. Right. But that's still running JavaScript, right? The server yeah, side? The, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's still the same thing, I think. Again, having not done it. Because um, yeah. even now, when I'm doing those back-end conversations, I'm doing all that from C-sharp. Yeah. JavaScript never talks to that stuff. So I haven't written that code before. But... Um, and, and part of this, like, I don't need a FileMaker solution. I need to learn how to do this from JavaScript in general, because I want to connect to FileMaker. I want to connect to all of my Office 365 stuff, to Todoist, to Apple APIs. Like anyone who has a REST API, I should be able to consume that. And I need to learn how to do that in JavaScript. And the tutorials from that are either, here's a little code snippet, assuming that you know everything about this already, or this is going to take six weeks. And there's nothing in between there. I'm like, I just need like the getting started guide equivalent. Hmm. Uh, okay. I gotcha. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the simple version is very simple. And you can use that for cases where the answer is very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, where you start bumping into serious problems is in security and things like OAuth integration. Mm-hmm. And as far as I can tell, basically everybody beats their head against it. Yeah. Um, I've read people say, no, OAuth integration is easy. And I just don't believe them. <laughs> like everybody else has had too much difficulty. I've read professional developer, you know, the, the people who are writing the libraries go, yeah, OAuth is a pain in the ass. I wish we mm-hmm. didn't have to do it but we have to do it. So yeah. Um, at some level, I would still look for a library of some kind that's going to wrap up that part for you. So you can interact with more complex APIs in a slightly more simple manner. I guess, I guess what I'm getting like, Maybe I'm not making myself clear. Like when I do this in PHP, I say, here's a URL, here's a username, here's a password, execute a request. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm looking for. And the JavaScript syntax to that seems to be hundreds of lines of stuff <laughs> or nothing whatsoever using some library. Right. Like basically a whole black box of stuff that you can't touch. And it, I don't understand what is going on like why is it so much more complex in JavaScript than PHP? Now, is the PHP answer the same if you're talking to a 
Well, see, the FileMaker PHP stuff uses um, a different kind of authorization. If you do PHP to something like Office 365, is that interacting with OAuth or is that going through a whole different thing? No idea. Like, you may just be sneaking through a gap by using old technology. Yeah. And that all the modern JavaScript stuff uses more complex security methods to do it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it kind of brings into question everything that I'm doing with this stuff because the entire point of what I want to do with WebXR stuff is to make tools that people can visualize data. But if I can't build anything to get the data there, then what am I even wasting my time for? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, here's a stupid answer. You want server-side and you... So you've, you've already committed to having a server why not at least at this stage just do those through php because doing anything other than the most basic loading is going to take too much overhead i want two-way communication so i can mm. do i can load something yeah. php and then make a request and get data okay and that's it that's the end of that entire life cycle where i want something more persistent hmm and you can you can get there with PHP by using Ajax and stuff like that, but it's just for for a technology I don't want to work in. That's more work than I want to do, and I may end up doing something like that because one of my ideas was building kind of an abstract way of visualizing data from the WordPress API, so posts or uh, pages mm-hmm. or any of your taxonomies, um, treating those as objects in a list and then giving you ways to visualize those in VR. And maybe that's a better place to start. I don't know. I mean, I, I could just go the other other direction entirely and just say, bring your own data. Like, here's where, like, here's where my code stops and the edge of it is where you point your JSON and dump mm-hmm. it in here and it'll read those properties and do something with it there. Or here's where you pass in a list of fields that you're passing with that JSON or something like that. But yeah. Might might just be time to get to uh, buy another cup of coffee for Charles Delfs. Yeah. <laughs> just a, a pure theory conversation of what the space entails, because I know that his product was at least initially built around talking to FileMaker, but I also know that he's expanded beyond that by a significant margin. Yeah, Um, and I guess the the bigger problem that I'm talking about is I don't know what I want to build. Yeah. So if I had a specific thing that I was working on, I'd be able to force myself to figure out all the steps to get there. But what I keep doing is, you know, I have weeks where I don't have any time to touch any of this stuff. Then I get a small opportunity or small window of time to work on something, I'm going to be super productive and get something done. None of the things that I want to do are achievable. And then I just end defeated. Right. So like this morning, I was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to get this. I'm going to figure out how to request data from an API in Nuxt on the server. And then I'm going to connect that to something. 
either my FileMaker API or a SharePoint list or mm -hmm. Todoist or something. So I started with with a SharePoint and all the documentation for using the SharePoint API is super clear. The documentation for connecting to the SharePoint API, no idea where that is. <laughs> no freaking idea. <laughs> like they just, they assume that you have already entered yeah. the building and have full access. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'll go look at Todoist. And Todoist is like, here's the shell API and here's the Python API. Hope you're not using anything else. <laughs> Okay, so I'm like <laughs> back over to FileMaker, and you know, just spent half an hour looking at the different JavaScript versions of FileMaker to get, for talking with the uh, data API, and just ended up just walking away. I'm like, I guess I'll deal with this in a couple weeks if I have time. Hmm. Yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, we we got a little off the core of the conversation there and into specific weeds but mm -hmm. yeah okay. it's one of those things that like i need to it, i would describe this entire thing as a project prerequisite like i need this figured out before i can start doing any of the stuff i want to do but it's yeah. clear to me this isn't the type of stuff that i want to do i don't want to be a database admin or someone who writes apis even necessarily writes back-end code. Like, I think working on this view project with you has made it clear that, like, I like this front-end stuff. If I can just mm -hmm. request data to have changed in the back-end and Dave does it and it's magic, like, that is the kind <laughs> of work I want to be doing. <laughs> <sighs> like, I've never really done that on a team with FileMaker projects. Like, I've always done the full, kind of the full stack of a FileMaker project. I've never actually done a FileMaker project where I only do the back end or only do the front end or right. anything like that. Well, I've I've got an idea or two then, but we'll uh, we'll have to chat about that offline. Okay. So something else that we'll be talking about over the next couple of weeks is uh, Oculus Quest Two. Yeah. So that was announced a couple of days after our last episode, and I think I pre-ordered it while they were announcing it. <laughs> they, they didn't have the store closed for updates while they were? They did, and I just kept refreshing the page, and about 40 <laughs> minutes into the keynote, it came back online. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing to watch. They're, like the Facebook Connect or Oculus Connect keynote is a weird production because it's it's like some facebook executives talking big picture marketing speak and then usually getting super into weed into the weeds about a specific product or something they're working on and then over to michael abrash who just dreams for 40 minutes and just like mm -hmm. weaves this tale of the future of technology that is super intriguing it's like this is just a weird setup but yeah, Oculus Connect 2 is coming. It's, a, it's quite a bit better than the current Oculus Quest that I have. Supposedly quite a bit more comfortable, which is the thing I'm most looking forward to. But also some big improvements to the hardware um, and the screen resolution. The only thing I'm a little worried about is the controllers. 
people say they're a little bit bigger. And everybody said that the Quest controllers were too small, and I thought they were the perfect size. <laughs> so I'm kind of a smallish person. But it seems like they went back towards listening to everybody else except for Joe. It made the controllers mm. a little bit bigger. So hopefully I can still reach all the buttons. Because that was one thing that with the original Oculus Touch controllers, you've got your basically your A and B buttons on one side and your X and Y buttons on the other side. I couldn't reach the top two of those buttons without physically shifting the controller in my hand. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that was weird. Hopefully I don't have that problem with this one. But it starts shipping allegedly October 13th. I'll be interested to see when we actually get them. Like, what does that mean? They start shipping. Like, are yeah. you shipping them from China that day, or are you shipping? <laughs> are they arriving that day? Like, yeah. Well, as I mentioned last episode, if it was more than just a minor spec bump, I was going to pick one up. So I ordered one as well, though not during the keynote. I waited a little while and chatted with Joe and made sure it was meeting all my requirements and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mine's in some version of on the way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to having some VR that isn't a major production to get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I like the end product of using the Vive, but... 20 minutes between I think I'd like to do some VR and actually starting to do VR doesn't really work for me. And part of that is a creature of my own creation. Um, no, it's really not. <laughs> that's ever just pretty much everybody's take on PC VR. Like it's just a, a pain to get into. It's one of the things yeah. that like even PlayStation VR does better because you don't use your PlayStation for really anything else other than like washing stuff and gaming. And, but you know, if I'm playing a game like No Man's Sky for, you know, every night for weeks or months on end, it's always in the background. Yeah. So I don't ever have to wait for the entire game to load up. I just, you know, the, the PlayStation is in sleep mode. I turn it on, it powers right on, put the headset on, I'm back in VR. And PC VR just doesn't work that way because we use our PCs for other stuff. And you don't want to just sit there running a VR game at 90 frames a second for weeks or days or hours at a time. And you can't really sleep with those apps or background them in the same way that we do yeah. in PSVR. And then Quest is even easier. You can just take the thing off and it goes into standby mode. So like in the middle of a game, you can just pause it and take it off and then come back to it later. Um, they also launch games fairly quickly. There's a, there's a couple of games that launch ridiculously slowly and I, I hate to say it but i think they're unreal engine games mm. i think they do a whole bunch of loading on the front end and that cuts down on what they're doing throughout the game but i, I have noticed that with some unreal engine titles yeah for me i actually don't use my pc for anything other than vr so that means that every time i want to get into it i get to go through update cycles and things like that and the mm-hmm. delay between times when I do VR also means that, for example, my lighthouses are powered off. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the the uh, UPSs that they're connected to actually powered down. So I have to kind of hunt around the house and find the little switches to plug things in and turn things on and whatever. 
all around the living room, run a bunch of Windows updates. Oh, hey, look, there's a Vive update, because I haven't done it in a couple of months. You know, and it's just all of that ends up being this overhead that I never really want to deal with if I just want to pick up something and play. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to the quest. Yeah, it's... I mean, the current one is pretty awesome, aside from the ergonomic stuff. That's really my only complaint about the, the first one. Um, and then we're basically going four years, jumping like three to four years in processors, which is going to be a pretty big jump. So they've gotten a whole bunch of performance out of a relatively old system on a chip, and now they're using the current gen top-of-the-line snapdragon chip for this that's also customized specifically for vr and ar Mm -hmm. setups so it'd be interesting to see what this can do that the old one couldn't is one thing i like about the way that facebook slash oculus rolls stuff out there is no like here is oculus os 2.0 or 3.0 like that that doesn't exist they just when a feature is ready they ship it and over 18 months of quest they have just continually made the thing better in software in like massive leaps um like when i got the device it didn't have hand tracking now it has hand tracking they just issued that as a software update and they rolled it out as an experimental feature and got people using it and got people building stuff with it and then finalized it and shipped it last spring like it's really cool how they can do stuff like that it's a totally different way of doing things what we're used to with other companies Mm -hmm. I was just thinking the same thing. So yeah, there is no big, uh, got to get my app ready for Oculus OS 14 in the fall. Yeah. Significant new, I'm making finger quotes, hardware features aren't tied to hardware releases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some good stuff. I'm not super interested in doing any native development for it, although that has gotten a bit more appealing or it will get a bit more appealing because they're making a way for you to submit stuff to their store infrastructure without having to go through the curation process of actually being in their store. Mm-hmm. So you can still get the stuff onto the device. You just have to distribute links or keys yourself, um, which is a good way for handling like pre-release software, betas, or just trying to see if, you know, does my idea have any traction? Is anybody interested in actually using mm-hmm. this? type of development which you really couldn't do under the current store guidelines my guess is facebook being facebook they'll be watching those download numbers and go hey a lot of people Mm -hmm. are using your stuff would you like to be in the store yeah it's interesting they actually limit the downloads for those they haven't said what those limits are but uh, (laughs) apparently there's also like a cap to that so Mm. you could only it could be possible like you've got a an app that 100,000 people want, but you can only distribute 10,000 of them or something. Be interested to see what that looks like. But yeah, yeah exactly where that stuff. exactly where that limit is could be important. Mm-hmm. Not that even I am in an area where I distribute 10,000 copies of my software. Mm-hmm.